The future may not be clear, but our commitment is. So when you sit with an advisor at Merrill Lynch, we'll put your interests first. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have Michael Zizis. You may not have heard of him, but he is Morgan Stanley's chief strategist for public policy and municipal bonds. If you are at all an investor in the fixed income portion of uh, assets, if you're curious as to what goes into the bond buying decision, how how the buy side actually thinks about, tracks, and makes allocation decisions, you will find this conversation fascinating, as did I. Uh, it's a little wonky. It's a little in the weeds. It's very, very specific. But you would be amazed at how many different subjects have to come under the data set that muni bond uh, investors look at. Everything from politics and public policy to uh, credit quality to local economics to macroeconomics. Uh, it, it's really, as well as the Federal Reserve and interest rates, which we didn't even touch on. I think everybody has heard enough of that. Obviously, if rates are going up or not, it becomes a fairly significant question. Um, all told, Mike is a really knowledgeable guy about these things. Obviously, Morgan Stanley is a giant firm, uh, both in equities and uh, fixed income and, and muni bonds. Uh, the muni bond market is almost $4 trillion uh, in the United States. Other countries have their own version of uh, municipal bonds. Uh, it's, it's really very interesting, and it touches on areas you might not have been aware of. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with Michael Zizis. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Michael Zizis. He is Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. public policy and municipal bond strategist. He joined Morgan Stanley about a decade ago in the role of head of credit analysis for their U.S. investment group. Uh, previous to that, he worked at Fitch Ratings as a credit analyst, uh, and he began his career focusing on the public sector capital budgeting and economic development. He comes to us with a BA from Georgetown and a master's of public affairs from the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Michael Zizis, welcome to Bloomberg. Hey, thanks for having me. So we were just in Austin. What a fantastic town. Every oh. time I'm, I'm in there, I'm like, wow, this is really... Someone described it to me as the blueberry in the middle of the Texas raspberry pie, which or I thought the, was uh, Or the third coast. Is the the other third one. coast. Yeah. Definitely, definitely not Dallas or Houston, to no. say the least. No. You have a really interesting background, and the transitions that you've gone through are, are really quite fascinating. How do you go from looking at public affairs and analyzing credit to running a muni bond portfolio? I would say by accident okay. or in inadvertently for the most mm -hmm. part. So I think public policy, public affairs was sort of my first intellectual love, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, through, let's say, kind of a series of experiences, uh, work experiences, both in college and afterwards, where I decided and really liked the pace um, of public policy. Too slow? 
a little too slow, a little, yeah, not much competition. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of smart people who worked in those areas, but I think the sort of pace of bureaucracy um, it just just wasn't what you would want if you were a very ambitious person. It's not to say it's not worthwhile work, but it's it's kind of academic and slow as opposed to market based and well, fast based. That's right, and, and it sort of fought, fell into the markets based work when I was in grad school, mm-hmm. where I tried to make a little extra money working for one of the credit rating agencies. I worked for Fitch down in Austin. Uh huh. And that was kind of my first taste, even though rating agencies are not a terribly fast place to work. It was my, kind of my first taste of kind of translating public policy because I was working in munis then, translating public policy into kind of market-based analytics. And I got hooked. I got uh-huh. hooked. I stayed there. I didn't go into government like I intended to. And you know, one thing led to another. I ended up on the buy side within Morgan Stanley. And a couple of years later in the role that I have now, which is uh, running a research and strategy team for munis and now public policy. So so let's talk about when you join Morgan Stanley. You start pretty much right in the midst of the credit bubble. You're on a buy side, You're meaning you're not on the brokerage side selling individual bonds to investors. You're buying bonds on behalf of investors. What was it like to start right in the middle of that storm? It was uh, it was scary. <laughs> it, it was uh, well. First, there's the shock of having the responsibility of managing other people's money, mm-hmm. which to someone who at the time was you know, pretty broke, um, it felt this kind of huge burden that uh, you know I didn't really completely understand or was having trouble grapple with. On top of that, you had this kind of big crisis that was just getting bigger and bigger. Oh mm-hmm. seven, yet really the very. Early stages of the housing market rolling over, early stages yeah. of the default starting on, on mortgages and some prime starting to pick up. Markets were still going higher. You Stock markets were going higher, as were bond markets. At what point in that baptism of fire did you say, hey, this is really an unusual set of circumstances? I was initially focused just on munis when I was there. So we saw some of the telltale signs. We were able to identify some of them early in the sense that when you see corporate credit markets starting to show signs of weakness, because of, there's a lag effect, right? Where sure. government revenues tend to kind of trail the real economy. You know, if you think about it, if you go buy something at your drugstore, the sales tax you pay on it might not make it into the state's coffers for a while or effectively be spent for a while. Certainly so, not on income tax. Takes, right. takes forever. So or a year. So the okay. point there, we could kind of see what was happening in corporate credit markets, and it was appropriate to kind of be more defensive. So from that perspective, it was easy for us to be a little bit defensive. And in that environment, you weren't getting paid too much to take a lot of credit risk anyway. So uh, so you were buying bonds primarily, muni bonds primarily for their. Tax-free yields is—is is, was yeah. that the thinking back then? I mean, bo- bo- yeah, boring. So <laughs> it, it, was, it was a boring approach, it's but, boring, the, but by design, but it's boring. Yeah. Right, I was going to say it's boring, yeah. but they're built to be boring. And how big is the muni market in the United States? It's tremendous. Three point seven trillion dollars. That, that, if you a, want risk, you can find it in that market. Um, it's just that wasn't the that wasn't the pl- that wasn't the place or the time where we went looking on for purpose it. or by accident. I mean, we could talk about <laughs> we could talk about Illinois. We could talk about Puerto Rico. Or do yeah. you mean there's risk that people are wholly unaware of because of inflation, credit risk, duration, et cetera? I guess I would say all of the above mm-hmm. to what you're saying. Uh, there, I mean, in any market, there there are investors taking risks they don't completely understand, and you know that, that's what kind of makes them interesting. With the muni market, the most misunderstood risks that I think are now beginning to be better understood are the risks of 
basically sovereign political risk, right? Mm -hmm. Puerto Rico, Illinois, these are places that tell you that the same type of sovereign political risk that exists in other countries, they exist in the muni market also. So what was your take on on the very famous uh, Meredith Whitney claim that we're going to see hundreds of, of muni bond defaults, states, cities, et cetera? That really rocked the muni bond market for a while. I, I'd say that she was right in spirit, but really wrong in magnitude. And when I say right in spirit, what I mean is that there are some very meaningful long-term credit challenges to the muni market that uh, if they're not addressed politically... Uh, they're going to express themselves in a meaningfully negative way, uh, you know, over the medium term, let's call it kind of five to 10 years from now, or maybe if they're catalyzed with a big recession. But she was wrong in magnitude and timing. And, and that means a lot in markets. For sure, to, to say the least. Hey, if you give a forecast, the old joke is you could give a dollar level or a date, but never both at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Michael Zizis, Morgan Stanley's chief muni bond strategist, discussing investing in municipal bonds. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Michael Zizis. He is Morgan Stanley's chief muni bond strategist. Let's talk a little bit about the bond world. Why do people say the bond market is the smart money? I think that there's this kind of romantization, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but Mm -hmm. uh, of kind of the contrarian, right, of the person who can kind of see risks before they develop and see disasters before they develop. And I think bond investors, generally speaking, are kind of always looking for that Mm -hmm. because they've got the same price incentive, positive price incentive that a stock investor has. You know, if you want to see stock prices go up, you tend to kind of ignore looming risks. If you want to see bond prices go up, you tend to focus on those looming risks Hmm. because you're focused on whether or not you're going to get paid back. It's basically like making a loan. So I think in the times that the that markets around risk markets take a downturn and bond investors look smart there is this kind of you know lionizing of the bond investor but the problem is if you kind of give in to that kind of perma bearish view you end up losing a lot of money in the interim you know the opportunity cost of being permanently bearish is is negative so i'd say early in my career and you asked earlier about what it meant to kind of start in the middle of the financial crisis i say that was kind of hammered into me just by market conditions early that being bearish was kind of the right thing to do it took a while for me to kind of unwind that view and, and mm-hmm. embrace a more risk-taking view, which I think is a more having a more balanced and sort of flexible approach. It has to be more appropriate. So, so let's address that perma bear attitude. We see it in stocks, but we've been seeing it in bonds for forever. I can't count how long I've been told we're in a bond market bubble. Interest rates have nowhere to go but up. I, I've heard that literally for decades, pretty much my entire career. Uh, this is as low as yields are going to go. The the bond bull market is over when, in fact, it's 32 years in the making. And and I I don't think we can officially say it's ended yet. Yeah. I I mean, there are mathematical reasons Mm -hmm. uh, to sort of uh, to discount that argument. And then there's kind of fundamental economic reasons. You know, Mm -hmm. the mathematical reasons are basically bond investment. You're clipping a coupon. You've got some cushion against negative price movement. History tells you that if you're underweight bonds, or you're, you just own very short maturity bonds within a balanced portfolio, you, that is the riskier choice. As opposed to something longer yeah. that's a good credit rating or good credit risk yeah. that you could hold to maturity. The income you give up by doing that 
in order to make it up later, you have to be really right really fast about bond yields going up. Mm -hmm. And it's not typical that that happens, right? There are the obvious exceptions throughout history. You got your kind of 1994, late 70s, early 80s, but those are exceptions to the rule. So that's kind of mathematical reason. Fundamental reason is unless there is some type of exogenous shock to the economic system that kind of shocks us into a higher growth rate, we're still kind of looking at real growth rates and inflation that are relatively low. So the fundamentals don't necessarily support, you know, real bond yields meaningfully higher from here. And so, you know, the, the big debate this year and sort of at the end of last year after the election was, were we going to get that exogenous shock because President Trump and Republican Congress were going to deliver a big tax cut, big expansion of infrastructure spending. And so if that happens, then sure, I think it's valid to say that bond yields are, are going to go up. But um, you have to have a lot of confidence in that view and a lot of evidence behind it. Right now, we don't see either. I can't say I disagree. Let, let's fast forward to the current circumstance. I want to pull a quote from one of your recent uh, notes. The prospect of a Fed taper to its balance sheet raises obvious questions about long-term rates, just as tax reform threatens long-end muni rates. Exactly what you were just discussing about. Explain why that is. What is it about tax reform uh, that impacts the muni rates? And what is it about um, the Fed's taper that's going to affect uh, shorter term rates? Yeah, so, so so this this is kind of two components of what mm -hmm. we call the, the the Trump triple threat to munis. What's what's the third threat? Well, so it's Fed, it's tax reform, and well, there's basically there's two components of tax reform. One is lowering the tax rate. The other is changing the the tax exempt treatment mm -hmm. of muni bonds. And is that legitimately on the table? Uh, we think so. We think so. It's not part of any formal plan right now. Wow. But. It's been part of previous formal plans like the Dave Kemp plan in 2014. It was part of almost every single one of Barack Obama's budgets. The, uh, not the idea of eliminating tax-exempt interest, but capping it for high-income individuals. Meaning you can't just buy billions of dollars worth of munis and expect to get that income tax break. There, there's basically, without boring you to death on the details, you would have to pay. You can't. I love this stuff. <laughs> well, think about it this way. If you have, if let's let's look at Barack Obama's original plan on this, he wanted to cap itemized deductions and exclusions for high income earners. So it wasn't at what dollar amount. So his proposal was based on the tax rate that you pay. Mm -hmm. So and it was for everything. It wasn't muni focused. But think about it this way: if you are earning a hundred thousand dollars of muni interest and you're in the thirty five percent tax bracket, but he wanted to cap the way the amount you could enjoy that to the same as someone in the 28% bracket, right? Mm -hmm. $100,000 muni interest, 35% tax bracket, you're shielded from a $35,000 tax liability. But if instead they said we want to cap you at 28%, then you're only shielded from a $28,000 right. liability. That $7,000 difference is a tax you have to pay. So said differently, makes you, bonds you pay muni's tax. less less attractive. Yeah, so there's still very much a tax preference in that scenario because mm -hmm. you're still being shielded from $28,000 of tax, but there's some level of tax that you have to pay. Hmm. And that's a that would be very different to the market where you had something that felt purely tax-free before. Now there's some level of taxation applied to it. But that's just one example. I mean, in our view, the reason it's hypothetically on the table is because there is a drive to make tax reform, to push tax reform as a Republican-only plan through budget reconciliation, right? That's the procedure by which you can mm -hmm. get 
51 um, votes, not 60 in the Senate. Uh, right. In order to do that and make the tax cut permanent, you have to raise a bunch of money to offset the, the money you're losing by lowering tax to, rates. To, to explain that, you can do it on a simple majority if it's revenue neutral. If it actually costs revenue, you need 60 votes or 60 percent. Yeah. Is that correct? Or if you allow it to sunset. So you think about the Bush tax the cut 10 in 2001. Mm -hmm. Right. So what you have here is a plan, at least the one that Paul Ryan is following right now, which he claims is revenue neutral based on an assessment it got from the Tax Foundation, which is a conservative-leaning right. think tank. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Michael Zizis, Morgan Stanley's chief muni bond strategist, discussing public policy and tax reform. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Michael Zizis. He is chief strategist at Morgan Stanley for municipal bonds and public policy. Uh, previous to that, he was a credit analyst at Fitch Ratings. Let's talk a little bit about the prospects for tax reform. One of your recent notes did something that I don't think you guys have done a whole lot in the past. You put some fairly specific probabilities on the odds of, of tax reform actually passing. Tell us about that. So uh, I'm always very reticent to put specific probabilities on things because uh, wh what what I worry about is that it implies a kind of false precision. Mm -hmm. um, the old and, joke about economists using two decimal places just to show they have a sense of humor? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I, I would say two things. One, investors really kind of demand that from us. Mm -hmm. um, and, and two, I sort of understand that because what probabilities, as long as they're well-defensed and logical, help you do is they help you build some logic into your portfolio, into your portfolio strategy. And if you have that type of consistency with how you build probabilities of different event risks mm -hmm. um, across your portfolio, then whatever story you're trying to tell as an investor is coherent and it makes it easier to manage risks. So that, that's the rationale for why we do it. I'd say the way that we try and keep our probabilities sane um, <laughs> is we you know we, we try and we whatever problem whatever event we're trying to 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 forecast here we first try and establish what are the rules of this event like really what how far can this go one way or another mm -hmm. we try and establish data to kind of help us measure kind of prior probabilities and then we try and iterate on those prior probabilities so mm -hmm. you know if you take tax reform for example um the sort of operative um uh, you know, the, 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 the operative theme that we had to focus on was what's possible through budget reconciliation, which is the process that would allow Republicans to basically ignore Democrats. Right. And then on, we had to layer on top of that, you know, given the current political conditions, how likely is it that a president and the same party can actually execute on their policy priorities? So we had to go back and reconstruct data. We went... We looked all the way back to presidential elections going all the way back to World War II. We cataloged um, what the main promises were of each candidate who eventually won and what was the execution rate in their first year in office. And it was about 60%. And so we were able then to iterate um, huh. above and below 60% based on other conditions. Same party, agree on, on the goals, et cetera. Yeah, and I, I'm simplifying it a bit. And I'm, I'm a big fan of using kind of to sanity check ourselves. I'm mm -hmm. a big fan of using Bayes' theorem. I'm also a big fan of just kind of asking some of the other smart people that we work with. 
Um, Define Bayes' theorem for listeners who may not have a mathematical or statistical background. So I mean, Bayes' theorem is just a way of calculating the probability, or at least the way we use it, it's the way of calculating the probability of an event given given uh, the prior. sort of prior baseline probability and then relating it to new evidence. So if in, th- if in any given year, knowing nothing else, the probability of a tax reform was 5%, you know, based on just how many years you got a tax reform divided by how many years we've been you. in existence. Um, and then you sort of iterate for new information. Well, what's new information here? New information is that Republicans control the White House and both houses of Congress. And we know that 60% of the time they can execute on their top priorities. We know that um, they that the reforms they want to pass can go through the reconciliation process. So that ups the probability and on and on and on. So let me let me throw a curveball at you. What did the failure of Obamacare repeal and replace do to your probabilistic studies on corporate tax reform? So you know, a part of this for us is defining a timeline too, um, in the sense that we think that a, a failure to pass a tax reform in a timely fashion is potentially as disappointing to investors as just sure. an outright failure. Absolutely. So. Better the, late than never, but sooner is much better than later. Yeah. So what happened after the kind of, let's call it the heretofore failure to repeal and replace Obamacare was uh, it was sort of a sort of failure to pivot on the part of the Republicans, mm-hmm. right? We said they need to fish or cut bait. Whether or not they fish or cut bait and move to tax reform is going to tell you a lot about the timing of tax reform and the content of it. And they appear to have tried to do both. They said they're going to focus on tax reform, but they haven't given up on the legislative process. And so that that pushes the timing of tax reform back. They've also, in our view, tried to overcorrect for what happened um, in ACA by opening up the process. So now they're going to have hearings. Now they're going to engage Democrats and at least try a bipartisan, or at least they say they're going to try a bipartisan. Who knows what they really want to do? All of that adds time to the clock. All of that muddles the possible mm-hmm. details of tax reform, none of it improves the probability of success, but because it pushes back timing, the probability of success within a timely manner has gone down in our view. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Michael Zizis, Morgan Stanley's chief muni bond strategist, discussing the municipal bond market. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Michael Zizis. He is Morgan Stanley's chief strategist for municipal bonds and public policy. Let's talk a little bit about the muni bond market. Uh, When you're analyzing municipal bonds, where do you even begin? How does that, what does that process look like? So we always start with fundamentals and it's both top down and bottom up. Uh, the, the process I like is to sort of sequence them that way, top down, then bottom up. Top down meaning where are we in the economic cycle? What's driving the economic cycle? Um, where are the weak sectors of the economy, the strong sectors of the economy? And then go bottom up to see where are there credit vulnerabilities within the municipal bond system? Are there regional economic vulnerabilities? Is it a vulnerability in terms of types of security? So to give you an example, you know, a couple of years back when oil prices were, were dropping like a stone mm-hmm. and it seemed like the energy sector, if there was going to be another recession in the short term, it was going to be driven by the energy sector. So then what we had to do was go around and say, where are the regional economies that have an outsized um, exposure to the energy sector? 
And, you know, realistically, not, not just the economic impact, but what is the revenue impact to state and local budgets? And what we found there was that you had mostly higher, higher rated areas of the country were exposed. Mm-hmm. But outside of a few uh, kind of smaller... Um, Oklahoma, North Dakota. Yeah, they don't have a lot of debt outstanding. So the risk right. of this being a systemic problem was quite low. There was a risk of these places kind of underperforming. And, you know, net net, we didn't think it would be a big problem for the market. So we said, all right, well, this is not going to drive our view. There are other things that are going to drive our view, but not necessarily this. So so if you look at a, a, a region like Texas or, or Houston, I remember the 80s was a disaster when oil prices fell. It yeah. seems like they're much more diversified and much better capable of withstanding that sort of pressure. Well, a, a state like Texas, that's certainly true. And Texas was one of the more conservative states in terms of projecting oil prices for... So a lot of these states have what they call severance taxes, mm-hmm. right? When you take some oil out of the ground or anything else, you charge a tax on it. And that tax is based on the prevailing market price for that oil. And Texas, I don't remember the exact numbers, but amongst the major states uh, that are oil producers, so you know Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Alaska, um, and North Dakota, Texas had among the more conservative estimates of what the price would be. So the revenue shortfall for them was far smaller, on top mm-hmm. of the fact that they were much more economically diversified. You know, you look at a place like North Dakota, which is focused on shale, and therefore needs that price to be higher. Uh, the revenue shortfalls there, at least the risk of revenue shortfalls, were really substantial. But ultimately, I think the state of North Dakota has about $2 billion of debt outstanding, and that's mm-hmm. including all of the local debt, so that's not even the state-level debt really kind of a drop in the bucket relative to a 3.7 trillion market. So how many different municipalities in the United States do you guys cover? <laughs> well, so it's got to be a lot, right? So <laughs> here's our team is the sort of strategy team for the municipal market. It's akin to having you know, a strategist who covers the S&P 500 and right. equities. So the single name analysis is largely done by our desk analyst team. Um, we are more sort of trend watchers and sort of we build up sector trends so we do a lot of single name analysis in the aggregate where we try and build up what trends are driving um uh you know credit quality moving up and down but give, give us an example that. i mean you mentioned indiana before and puerto rico what what is other than far too much spending relative to their income what what's yeah. driving those trends so i'll give you i'll give you a uh, i'll give you a couple sec- secular trends mm-hmm. that are important the, the one that gets talked about all the time is pensions and, and retiree liabilities, mm-hmm. right? And uh, the, you know, that is a problem most acutely being experienced in states like Illinois, but it's certainly not absent in other geographies. New what, Jersey is a perfect example. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, you know, the, the question there is about when are those funds depleted such that it actually impacts the operating budget and therefore there's less money to pay for schools and roads and the type of stuff that voters care about, Mm -hmm. which then catalyzes the political risk. In Puerto Rico, the willingness to pay was high until it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because all of a sudden it was not politically popular to pay the bondholders anymore because they would rather not pay the bondholders than shut down another hospital. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the kind of secular burden of debt generally, but the sort of soft debt of pensions. But the, but there's still enough kind of life in those funds that this is probably not a problem for another five years or so. Um, the other secular trend, which is, it's not about state and locals, 
whatsoever. It's just one example, really, um, that I find really interesting and really timely given what's happening in D.C. is the secular shift in how healthcare is provided in this country. Mm -hmm. When Obamacare came to be, there was in the muni bond market, so hospital debt is basically about 10 to 11% of the muni bond market. Mm -hmm. When Obamacare was being debated and initially passed, the spreads on those bonds really widened quite a bit. And this was a great, in my opinion, this was kind of a great example of where people kind of conflated their public opinion, or I'm sorry, their, their political opinions with market views. Because what was really happening was, regardless of whether or not you think Obamacare is a disaster, it was creating a massive amount of government spending that was going to take a whole bunch of uninsured people and make them insured. In other words, you created 20 to 30 million new consumers yeah. for hospital services. That's right. Paying and consumers anyway, as opposed to emergency room consumers yeah. who may not pay and often don't. So that was, a, that was a great opportunity to buy hospital bonds. And you even saw kind of a, a mini opportunity around that emerge uh, in the first quarter because it looked like you know the train was really rolling, the Republicans were going to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, and all of that revenue and margin expansion that happened with Obamacare was going to be totally unwound. Mm -hmm. So you had spreads widening again. And then as soon as you could tell, the political prospects for this were just not going to work out. Jim Chanos of, of Kinecos Partners was the first person I recall hearing say, I, I know they have both houses, but if you look at these stocks, look at the hospital stocks and bonds, they're trading as if this is going to fail, as if this is not going to go yeah. through. The market arguably saw this before the the political analysts seem to have noticed. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's right. And I think that the if you I think the political analysts were probably very focused on the idea that the intent of Republicans and sort of the the motivation was really high to get this done. Mm -hmm. Right. That there were that there were going the, the wings of the party, though they disagreed on how to replace Obamacare, were not going to risk not doing this because it would be a political blunder. Mm -hmm. But. What the market was telling you was that there are just irreconcilable differences within the Republican Party mm -hmm. as to how you replace this. The conservative wing of the party wants a very market-based approach where you reduce coverage and but then lower costs. And the moderate wing of the party, it's unclear how much different uh, they want things relative to what the current system is. So those two things really can't be reconciled. I think Paul Ryan did his best to try and reconcile them, but he ended it's up with a bill It's a thankless and almost far. impossible job, in yeah. other words. So let's let's apply this to, to our previous discussion on comprehensive ta tax reform. Tell us about what the odds are today, what they were, and what was the impact of uh, the failure of repeal and replace? So with comprehensive tax reform, the, the first thing we like to tell people is that there are a lot of different things which could hypothetically count as comprehensive tax reform. And some of them are really good market outcomes. Some of them are really risky market outcomes and some are just kind of neutral. So right now we're saying that you've basically have about a 60% chance in the next 12 months that you will see a tax reform. How but has that number changed 60% from, from our last iteration? It's down about 10%, but the outcomes within, um, uh, within tax reform are kind of skewing somewhat worse from a market standpoint. Really? Because what you have is a higher probability of delays because of what happened with the Affordable Care Act and the mm -hmm. fact that they're going to follow a more deliberative process now. And then B, uh, you have um, less of a path towards a tax reform 
that doesn't include some of the elements that the markets would probably consider somewhat disruptive in the near term. Mm -hmm. Things like limiting corporate uh, bond interest, for limiting deduction of corporate interest, for example. So if we're just looking at, let's let's talk corporate tax reform, if we're looking at a 35% uh, nominal rate, everybody pays much lower if yeah. they pay anything at all. But one of the key aspects of, of the Trump campaign was lowering that to, depending on the speech, 15 20%, yeah. whatever the number is. Do, what are the odds of seeing that lowered to, let's be rational and say, 25%? How do you how do you see that taking place? Yeah, I mean, I think reasonably speaking, twenty five percent we think is the lowest they can go at this mm. point. There there are scenarios. I where mean, they fifteen can is really kind of a no. We think fifteen is pretty much off the table. I think it, it I, just costs uh, too much. Uh, the, the actual rate is sixteen or seventeen percent that people realistically pay on a thirty five percent nominal rate. Is that a fair number? Uh, I think the average. Effective tax rate of an S and P five hundred company is around twenty six, twenty seven percent. Oh, it is that much. Okay, yeah. so yeah. to to get down to twenty five percent, there are a lot of loopholes and a lot of deductions that would have to go away. That's right. And on top of that, if you want to do it in a revenue neutral way, you have to consider things that would be in the new taxes. We have been speaking with Michael Zizis, Morgan Stanley's uh, chief muni bond strategist. Uh, be sure and check out the rest of our conversation, which we put up on Apple iTunes, Bloomberg.com, and SoundCloud, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things uh, muni bonds. Check out my daily column at BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. What could your future hold? More than you think. Because at Merrill Lynch, we work with you to create a strategy built around your priorities. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael, for doing this. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, and and I'm here. a little bit of a wonk. And, and you know, you, you said earlier... Um, you know, I don't want to bore people with the details of money, but it's not. If you are looking for tax-free income, and that is an enormous aspect of the investing community, muni bonds are amongst, assuming you're not in a tax-deferred vehicle, is one of the best options that, that people have. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, agreed. <laughs> and, and as you said, it's nearly a $4 trillion uh uh, sector, which, which is nothing uh, nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. So I know I only have you for a finite amount of time because you're catching a plane down to D.C. Let, let's jump into some of my favorite questions. I ask all of my guests, tell us about some of your early mentors who helped guide your career. So it's a, it's a great question, and I wish I had a more um, – I don't know, sort of corporate answer for it, but I, the answer that that pops to my mind is is my dad. You're not the first person okay. who said that. Well, you know, I, and it's not that I haven't had great people guiding me throughout my career, but you know, the voice in my head when it comes to mm -hmm. being a critical thinker and working hard and and sort of persevering, and I mean, we deal with these sort of tough, ambiguous, analytical challenges all the time. So it's really easy to kind of throw your arms up and just walk away from it. Mm -hmm. And so. Um, you know, that voice in my head kind of keeps me going, gives me confidence. And that's, that's where, that's who it comes from. Quite interesting. Um, uh, tell us about some investors who influenced your approach to investing in, in the credit and bond markets. 
Well, you know, here I'd say that I rely a lot on the people I work with. I think Morgan Stanley has a, a brilliant research department um, with a lot of experience. And, you know, here I'd actually also kind of give a shout out to my friend Colin Roche, who we talked about earlier, who I think you can, but by the, the process, we use a very evidence-based process, mm-hmm. right? We try as much to kind of ignore what we think should happen and look at what we think will happen, right? If someone wants to sit down with me over a beer and talk about ideally what would I want to happen in a perfect world, that's fine. But for investors, ultimately what, had, happen, what matters is what will happen. And that's more or less the philosophy that, you know, that Colin uses when, he, um, when he's taking an approach to what's happening with the economy, what's happening with the financial system. And I think there's something really refreshing about that, it's sort of free from the constructs of, the, you know, having a consistent academic theology as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, a really pragmatic, uh, uh, you know, kind of functionary. And and, uh, and full disclosure, we host an evidence-based investing conference twice a year, once in New York in the fall and then in, in June in California. And Colin is a panelist on uh, one of our conversations about the role of data in making investment decisions. And I had no idea you guys... Uh, we uh, yeah no we uh, we lived together in college for a few years. Oh really? Uh, I Small would, world. I would not have guessed that he would end up being the kind of responsible guru that he is. I won't go into any detail I, on I that. I think but... you could. I think you could take any weekend of anybody's college life and then juxtapose it twenty years down the road, and it's yeah. like, really, that doesn't seem to make a whole yeah. uh, lot of sense. That that's that's pretty uh, pretty standard. Um, let me talk about books. This is the question I get asked the most from listeners. So-and-so, what what books did you listen to? So we always work this in. Tell us about some of your favorite books, be they fiction or nonfiction, investing-related or or unrelated. So what I like, for, or a book that's really helped me from a work perspective mm-hmm. is um, Thinking Fast and Slow. Sure. So it's... Uh, you know, identifying, yeah, identifying psychological biases and, and being aware of them and the kind of role that data can play in sort of training your mind to be aware of those probably makes me a much more boring person, but I think it makes me better at my job. Um, you know, on the more leisurely side, um, a book that I really like and I still reread every so often is Friday Night Lights. Uh, Oh, really? Yeah. So not the, not the TV show. High school football. Yeah, I mean, uh, sports in kind Texas, of... In Texas, I think, if right, memory serves. Right, right, right. So it's basically... Um, so the, the author is Bissinger, and he goes and lives with a, uh, a high school football team in West Texas for a season and kind of file, follows their trials and tribulations. But the, the book is less about football, and it's more about kind of the experience that the team has, kind of focusing on um, you know, following one dream. And it's also about kind of the social and economic stresses of the sure. area and how they interact. And I mean, the reason I think it appeals to me is that I mean, sports have played a really big role in my life. I basically played organized sports all the way through college. And what'd you play in college? Uh, rugby. Mm-hmm. Um, and you still have all your own teeth. That's very impressive. I do, but I, I've had, I'd probably be smarter if I hadn't had a few <laughs> concussions right. and I have had to have shoulder surgery. And I definitely Rotator cuff or something else? Labrum. Oh, yeah. That's not a fun surgery, is it? No, and I had to have that surgery uh, basically about four weeks before my first daughter was born. 
which my wife was uh, not happy, about. not too happy, not too happy about. But it's amazing what they can do with modern medicine. I could hold the baby. I was good enough to hold the baby when. Uh, so, so Friday Night Lights somewhat reminds me of The Blind Side by Michael Lewis. Yeah, which is ostensibly about football, but really football is just the McGinty that's used to tell a story about everything you just described: race, poverty, economics, hopes, dreams, etc. Yeah, and I think, Liz, you know, for me, I kind of, I feel like on some level, I kind of share an experience with uh, the, the people in that story in the sense that there is sort of a shared purpose that comes with organized sports and mm-hmm. teamwork. And there's also a kind of shared experience of what it means to persevere, you know, su- succeed or fail. And, uh, you know, it, having those experiences helps you later in life to you know, also persevere. I've I've made the argument that the reason Wall Street desks are so populated with college athletes is exactly what you just described. I, I think there's some truth to that. You know, I think, you know, muni bond desks in particular tend to have a lot of ex-college athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely makes for good intramural sports. We had a dodgeball team a few years ago, which was undefeated. Dodgeball. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, any other books before we move on to our uh, next few questions? Um, you know, I mean, it's corny, but I... I the Bible. I still read the Bible. Really? Yeah. You know, I'm. I every couple of years I try and grind through the sort of chronological. There's a, a version of the Bible um, which attempts to kind of reorganize the Bible in chronological order. And what's the can, name of that? Well, I think it's just called the Chronological Bible. Uh huh. That's interesting. I was yeah, and then it, it's that. set up so that you read it about 15 minute increments every day, and you get through it. And in a year. In a year. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think I think it's how, interesting. How does how does this shift take place? Uh, you know, now that I think I always assumed the Bible was chronological, but I guess it really isn't. Uh, you start with Genesis, yeah. you're talking Old Testament, and then eventually you do kind of jump around a bit later on. You, you do. I mean, I would say it's more or less chronological, mm-hmm. but you know the the interesting thing is, you know, when you get to Psalms, right, which is, uh-huh. I mean, more or less poems that they can kind of pair them with the events that are happening, whereas the Book of Psalms stands on its own. That's right? really interesting. So some of that stuff, it gives you a new perspective. Also, for me, it's just a way to kind of, you know, keep on task, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's helpful. And listen, I think there's a lot of, uh, I'm not trying to proselytize here about religion or anything, but I think there's a lot of sort of encouragement of truth-telling and truth-seeking mm-hmm. that, that you know, that I think you, you need that inspiration, uh, particularly when you're in financial markets, which is, you know, every day is a puzzle where you're really mm-hmm. trying to figure out what the kind of most truthful nugget of information is that you can rely on. And I think that inspiration really helps. So tell us about a time, by the way, this is another question that comes from listeners. Tell us about a time that you failed and what you learned from the experience. Um I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this because I'm the chief muni bond strategist for Morgan Stanley. Nobody's listening. It's just just you and me. I'll tell you this. Um, I have one C on my college transcript, Uh and it's in public finance. (laughs) Really? Yeah. So you just redoubled your effort and overcame uh, that um, that shortfall. I think that's one way to look at it. Or or drunk during the test is the other one. No, no. I mean, to me, it, it, it was a big failure in the sense that I believe it was my sophomore year of college and I was always able to until then kind of reach back kind of based on on raw intellect and right. and, and, and get by right uh-huh. and in that class it was a very humble experience because I left that class 
and it finally sunk in. They're like, there are things that I just know nothing about. <laughs> and, and and I really knew nothing about what this professor was teaching me. And, mm-hmm. and I think after that, I decided that's not going to happen again. And so it wasn't about public finance per se, but it was about not being afraid to ask for help, not being afraid that I to admit that I don't know something and ask for help. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, kind of putting your ego aside, right? I mean, you you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You're not a failure if you're not the smartest person in the room on everything. Uh, but you can be a failure if you try and pretend you are and ultimately don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I, I share a similar college experience in terms of being able to get by on just raw processing power. Yeah. And then when you're confronted with a set of circumstance where that is insufficient to coast through, I wish I handled it as gracefully as you did. It sounds like that was really a significant life lesson. For well, you. you know, it's good because part of my job is to sit in front of people and, you know, they want you to have all the answers. And so it's tempting to pretend like you do have all the answers. Mm-hmm. But I think what's better and more genuine and you often get rewarded for sure. is admitting that you don't know the answer, you know, thinking and brainstorming about how you might get that answer mm-hmm. and come back with it later. Because I mean, the, you know, no the, doubt. the smartest investors know that no one has the answer, so they're going to know you're fake if you try and fake it. Make, makes a whole lot of sense. Um, tell us about, uh, you work with a bunch of younger folks as well as people more senior. Uh, what sort of advice would you give to a millennial or someone just beginning their career if they said to you, uh, hey, Mike, I'm interested in going into muni bonds. What What would you say to them? So... I'd say a couple of things, and this is interesting. I always like the millennial question because I'm I'm not sure if I'm a millennial or not. I feel like You're I straddle. Just right. I'm like, I'm, a, I'm like right there. So it's so funny. Yeah. I'm, I'm the exact same way. I'm not a baby boomer. They're all older than me, but I'm too old to be Gen X. I get to look in both directions. You, yeah. you might be find yourself yeah. similarly situated. On the cusp, right? I got the technology aspect of it, but maybe a little bit of a different worldview. But I, I would say – Two things. One on the muni issue specifically, because munis have this, re- or at least had this reputation of being boring asset class. You kind of put the charismatic, but people who are considered less intellectual on that product in terms of sales and trading. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, one of the the early phrases I heard about the muni industry was, oh, "It's the muni jocks," right? And I think the the post crisis realization is that this is a market that incorporates elements of sovereign risk analysis, mm-hmm. corporate credit analysis, um, you know, traditional bond math analysis. I mean, there, there are a lot of similarities to the mortgage Meaning back rates, market. inflation, et cetera. Rates, inflation, convexity. So, and therefore there are macro elements. I have to know as much about what's going on with the Fed as I do have to know what's going on in Springfield, Illinois with the state legislature. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it, it, it challenges you on a number of different levels. So um, don't let the fact that it tends to be something for mom and pop as opposed to, you know, derivatives or FX or something like that kind of shy away from it. And then, I mean, the other bit of advice I would have is more just general career advice and something that worked really well for me, even though I didn't seek it out, which is kind of find a job where you're probably going to get too much responsibility too early, mm-hmm. um, probably out of necessity. And this was something that was born of being in Morgan Stanley in the financial crisis, right? Where, you know, in the in the crisis, in the immediate aftermath, there weren't a lot of resources to go around. A lot mm-hmm. of people kind of forced into duty that was a little bit above their heads. 
It was kind of like an Apollo 13 moment. Like, we all have to fix this problem, but you only have the things that are being thrown on the right. desk right now to fix it with, you know, do your best MacGyver impersonation. <laughs> and that was great. That was great. I mean, you know, you had, you know, spreadsheets, Bloomberg machine, and uh, and your wits, and you go. And you you learn how to innovate. You learn how to take responsibility. It's a sink or swim kind of moment. And I think if you have those moments early in your career, it gives you a lot of confidence later. And our final, that's a really interesting answer. Um, and our final question, what is it that you know today about municipal bond investing that you wish you knew 10 or 15 years ago when your career was just ramping up? Hmm. Um, that, I guess that the rules are made to be broken in a sense. A, a lot of the... D define that before compliance uh, pulls you into their office <laughs> yeah. when they hear that. Well... Because I know what you mean, but they don't know what you mean. What I mean, and I mean this in terms of bond covenants, so in mm -hmm. a more boring way. Okay. Right? There are um, stresses that are so big that the things that are being promised to you as an investor you know, can be broken for reasons outside of your control. That shouldn't scare you. What it means is that you should demand some extra compensation for it, and you should take that into account when you analyze it. And here we go back again to something like Puerto Rico. Sure. You know, the, the mantra before the financial crisis and even for years afterwards were general obligation bonds don't default, can't default. The law says that you as the bondholder are entitled to any and all resource that the municipality has at its disposal to pay you back before anyone else. And if you think about it, it doesn't make much sense because what political constituency or group of citizens anywhere is going to allow the bondholders to completely suck dry the resources of a municipality just to, uh, just to uphold the law, particularly when states are sovereign entities you know, Puerto Rico was not sovereign, but Congress was, and Congress saw that the only way to effectively solve this crisis was to exercise its sovereign authority. And what I mean by that is the sovereign authority means they get to write the rules. They get to write the contract laws. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I think there are a lot of lawyers who could get in here and debate that say that what's happening in some of these situations is unconstitutional, but you create facts on the ground beforehand that create losses for bondholders first. So, you know, so going back to the question itself, I think you have to take all rules and all laws, um, you know, with some kind of grain of salt. You always have to figure out what your blind spot is and at least account for how this could go against you and not take for granted some of the kind of standard rules of, you know, of any market, right? Or the standard kind of rules of thumb anyway. Of the standard assumptions. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned Michael Lewis earlier. I mean, he he basically lionizes the type of people who just don't take things for granted, <laughs> right? And, you know, the uh, I think that's just a good general lesson. Fascinating stuff. We have been speaking with Michael Zizis. He is Morgan Stanley's uh, chief strategist for public policy municipal bonds. If people want to have access to your research notes, I assume they must be a Morgan Stanley client or is anything public? Uh, they should be a Morgan Stanley client. Um, you know, every once in a while we they do get, get we do list. get media we do get media coverage from Bloomberg and others. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if you have enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up or down on Apple iTunes or on our SoundCloud or BloombergView.com page, and you can see all of our previous hundred and forty-one or so such conversations. I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs. My booker, Michael Batnick, 
my head of research and Medina Parwana, our recording engineer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Our world is always moving. So with Merrill Lynch, you can get access to financial guidance online, in person, or through the app. Visit ml.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC.